The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, (laughs) I think we're going to have to put the psychiatrist on the couch today because my guest, uh, Reba Merrill um, is is missing in action. We were going to be talking today, as I tweeted out to my 18,000-plus followers, uh, we were going to be talking today about the book that she just wrote called Nearly Famous, Secrets, Lies, and Videotapes um, with Ginny Weissman. And I, I hope that nothing horrible has happened to her, but or if, they, or if she or one of her friends is listening, do please call in. Um, in the meantime, there's, you don't have to worry about me having uh, a lack of something to say. So, um, if, first of all, let me just say, if anyone would like to call in and ask for love advice or any kind of psychological advice, um, I am your psychiatrist host, and uh, I can help you with problems. You know that my books on relationships, bad boys, why we love them, how to live with them and when to leave them, and the current bad girls, uh, why men love them and how good girls can learn their secrets. So, okay. And, um, and if you also, as I promised my followers, um, if you would like to call in and ask about stars, actually I have, I have Ginny Weissman. She's saving the day. She is, <laughs> hi Ginny. Hi Carol. I was, uh, tuning in and I wondered why the show hadn't started yet. So yes. <laughs> I'm here. Well, I don't know. I hope nothing, I, I, I've been speaking to Mer- Reba Merrill for the last few, couple of days, so I, I don't know what could have happened. But um, in the meantime, you did co-write or, or correct me if that's not the right uh, That is not the correct word. I was actually a, a ghostwriter. Uh, I, I edited. Um, actually, even that's not the right term. Um, Reba basically wrote her own book, but, but brought, it, brought it to me for an edit and uh, my contributions. And, and then she was gracious enough to um, give me a, a uh, cover credit. Yeah. So uh, we worked together many, many years ago, 25 years ago, when she decided to, uh, when we were in kindergarten, as I like to say, <laughs> and when um, she decided to uh, write the book, she um, contacted me and uh, said that she had had a book written. You know, she she used this wonderful device called Dragon Speak, where you actually can just talk it instead of type it. Mm. So she actually handed me about 104 pages of what was, was basically, you know, the book, and then we worked together on it after that. Well, let me first give you a proper introduction, not like Thank you're you. someone calling in mm-hmm. out of the blue, although it was uh, out of the blue, um, fortunately. Um, let me uh, tell everyone, Ginny Weissman is an Emmy-nominated writer, producer, and director. 
as well as a journalist, author, manager, and publisher. <laughs> Her acclaimed documentaries have appeared on A&E, the History Channel, Discovery Health Channel, and PBS. She began her career as a journalist with the Chicago Tribune as the editor of TV Week magazine, where she interviewed hundreds of celebrities and wrote personality profiles. She's the co-author herself of two critically acclaimed best-selling books, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Anatomy of a Classic, and Champagne Music, The Lawrence Welk Show. They were St. Martin's Press. Um, You know, Ginny, as I was reading this book by Reba, I was thinking how perfect it was that um, you worked on it with her. Um, Okay, because uh, because you both had, for at least part of your careers, had uh, a lot in common in terms of interviewing a lot of celebrities. And um, so actually I would appreciate it if you would stay on because I did uh, did send out tweets (laughs) asking people to... uh, call in if they wanted to know secrets of their favorite celebrities. So perhaps there will be some that you can comment on as well. So apparently Reba has been found. Reba, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I mean, this, this, uh, this, as an interviewer, I, you would know that this, uh, it's not nice to give me a heart attack. <laughs> I've been sitting by the phone since a quarter to, quarter to one. And you didn't get the call? Nope. Never got a call. Well, I don't know. There must be some technical problem here. But in any case, you're here. Ginny's here. That's perfect. Okay, but I'd like to turn this over to Reva, okay? <laughs> All right. Well, it's up to you both. Yeah, I do. I do. So I'm glad you found her, and I'm going to be listening, okay? Thanks. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Reba. Um, let's start with, um, you know, it's what's been in- what was particularly interesting to me in your book was how you methodically set about um going going uh about getting a career in in the media uh not hollywood at first but and i was struck you know of course as a psychiatrist i i look at things that happen in childhood and you talked about how you had originally wanted or thought about having um going to broadway going to new york and having a career in show business but your mother dissuaded you from that and instead had you marry someone at 17, right after high school, who um, appeared great on paper, but uh, rich, tall, dark, rich, and handsome, and uh, but didn't turn out that way in real life. So why don't you take it from there? I think it's interesting that I'm from a generation that the word career wasn't even in one of the spelling tests that we ever had in school. Uh-huh. I was brought up to get married and to marry well and that my identity would always be as Mrs. Somebody. And I really bought into it. The thing about show business is that I always loved it from the time I was five, and I stood on the steps and I sang a tisket, a tasket. <laughs> we had a talent show in our neighborhood. Uh-huh. And, and the thing is that I always liked performing, and it's very difficult to be a performer when you cannot carry a tune, and okay. I stopped my dance lessons at seven. So I did school plays, and I really thought I wanted to be an actress. But to be honest, I don't think I was a very good actress, even though I got a lot of commercials. Um, it, the truth of the matter is that I had to face reality that what my dreams were, there was no place for me to fit into my dreams. Well, um 
Well, okay, but then, the, so then you got married, and then you got divorced, and then you wound up, you wound up working in publicity um, for a, what was the kind, it was a sort of a mundane, what was no, the it was a glass company. Yes. It, was a, it was a really a cool job. I have to say this, I did get a break, and this is where, uh, you talked about childhood. I got a chance to do the regional commercials for Continental Airlines. This is right before my divorce. Uh-huh. And it looks, it was just like Madison Avenue. I mean, it was just like Mad Men. They came from New York to do these commercials because the owner, the chairman of the board of Continental Airlines, uh, Robert Six, lived in Denver. So therefore they, they came to Denver to make them. And I did a series of commercials. So I was, I got a taste of doing television and I loved it. What I didn't love, and this was part of my, upbringing is that I got hit on a lot from the New York guys, just like Mad Men. And so um, after my divorce, I got out of television because I, I couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with it, which comes back to haunt me years later. Uh, I guess what we are as children, all the things your mother tells you, yeah. I guess a lot of them sticks. <laughs> um, I went to work for a glass company. Um, I like people. And I'm not afraid to talk to anybody. And the glass company was like, it was a perfect job. All I had to do is remember when they got married, remember their children's birthdays, remind them to when you get a ding in your um, windshield, call my glass company. (laughs) It's covered by insurance. And that's all I did. I didn't. (laughs) I didn't get hit on. These are all married men, nice married men, and I had Easter baskets for their kids, and I remembered when they got married and sent regards to their wives, and it was a really, really cool job. Well, and you it came paid. a long way from there, from there to Meryl Streep, and we'll get into that when we come back. We need to take a break. Okay. My guest is Reba Merrill. She is the author of a new book called Nearly Famous, Secrets, Lies, and Videotapes, so stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, 
Today's show is Nearly Famous, Secrets, Lies, and Videotape. My guest is Reba Merrill. She has interviewed everyone who's anyone in Hollywood, from Meryl Streep to Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts to Johnny Depp. She's an international entertainment journalist. She's interviewed hundreds of celebrities while promoting 500 feature films and conquering her own addiction. So we're going to be talking about her own her journey through Hollywood, um, including surviving the challenges along the road and including surviving her addiction to sugar, which um, it's true that recent news has uh, said is, is as addicting as cocaine. And uh, we're going to hear how she survived this on this road to success to become the author of this new book, Nearly Famous Secret Lies and Videotape, which is a book that, that not only chronicles her journey, but also has highlights from uh, the many of these interviews that she did with celebs. So, uh, Reba, we mm. were up to you working in, starting to work in PR, and you were in, then you were in Arizona, and... Um, you decided you wanted to be a talk show host because you didn't. You were sick of mouthing words and commercials that you didn't really believe in, or that you thought made you made you look stupid. Right. So that was you. You went about getting a talk show. I think people, you know, everybody dreams of well, not everybody, but lots of people dream of having their own talk show. And you went about it in such a methodical way. It was and took rejection after rejection. So tell us about that. But I didn't feel like it was a rejection, and I think that was interesting. Um, I was on a learning curve at the same time. I just said I wanted to do a talk show. I knew that if I got a clipboard and I could just talk. But the truth of the matter is all the people that I went to, the, the executives at the five television stations, which is all there were in 1973 in Phoenix, Arizona, each one gave me bits of advice, and I went and practiced it. Mm. In fact, yesterday, somebody that I interviewed to practice on, his name came roaring back to me from a conversation out of the blue with somebody. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, it's like it's a long time ago, like 40 years. But the idea is what I did is I went around, I don't know where I found the first person, on a reel-to-reel and interviewed them. And if they were comfortable, I said, would you give me to somebody else? And I did that. And so I had a collection of interviews, and it was a two-way street. I was learning that I could do it, that what was in my head, the dream in my head, might find reality out of my voice. I mean, and I did a lot of things. I called a lot of people. Uh, I, I'm, I guess it's in the books, I can admit it. I did a vision board. I was just going to bring that up, yes, because, you know, so many people are somewhat jaded about that, you know, the secret and all that, and division boards really work, and yes, they do. And also, I carried a yet, and I know you're going to laugh at me, but when I finally got to Channel 3, which was the ABC station, and the general manager, Burton Liddell, kept saying, not yet, I looked at that yet that he gave me and said, hmm, you know, all I have to do is kick that tee off, and I'm home free. Mm-hmm. And I did. I held on to these things, and, and I didn't feel like rejection. I felt it was like going to school in a way, and it was just different phases that I was learning. The most interesting was convincing my husband's boss's wife at the time to do a 4-H show at that television station, which I then maneuvered to star in so I could have a demo reel. Of course, I didn't know the word demo reel either. 
I didn't know the right words. I knew clipboard. That was about it. And I also knew there weren't very many women on television in 1973 in Phoenix, Arizona. And he gave me a chance. He hired me for four weeks. What he didn't realize is that I had been waiting for this, and I had been collecting from the different newspapers who was coming to town. Phoenix has the advantage of being a convention town, and a lot of famous people come in. And when I realized that Francois Gillo was going to be in town, though her timing was off for my television show, I asked Mr. Liddell if I could interview her about a week before uh, I actually went on the air, and he said yes. And out of the corner of his eye, he stood out of my eyeline, I promise you that, and watched me do this interview. And my first question to her is that you have lived with two of the most famous men of the 20th century, Pablo Picasso, who you have two children with, and you are now married to uh, to, uh, Salk. And I said, and you're French, so I know you must be great in the kitchen. (laughs) Now, the aside is, before the answer, is that I had read the book, and I knew where she was great. (laughs) And so she laughed. She did that wonderful French laugh, (laughs) like, you silly girl, (laughs) and said, there is another room where I am really good. (laughs) And he... After that interview, he came back and he said, would you like to stay for eight weeks? And that lasted for nearly three years. And I learned. Well, and, I then, learned. and you went on to do, to do more talk shows. Yes, well, that's because I kept getting fired. <laughs> I get fired a lot. Well, and, and why was one, that? The afternoon show that he hired me for, he then gave me a morning show that was five days a week after Good Morning America. Mm. And that show was still on the air called Good Morning Arizona that I created. Um, but then uh, I, I didn't look at this as getting fired, though I must say this. I sat on the floor and I cried. And the reason I sat on the floor is I'd already made the bed. I didn't want to mess it up. So I sat on the floor and cried. And then I got an opportunity to go to CBS at, in San Diego. And that, to me, was the dream of a life because it was an hour show, five days a week, on um, the number one station in the city. And I loved it. I loved it. I would have spent the rest of my life there, except that I made a very small mistake. They asked me two questions. They asked me what I was earning and how old was I. Who who asked you? Um, The general manager, Uh Robert Myers. Um, And I was so embarrassed what I was uh, earning in Arizona. Yeah. That I tripled it <laughs> very comfortably, <laughs> but I was I wasn't smart enough to take ten years off and say I was thirty one, but I was forty one. Uh-huh. And it comes back to haunt me. And at forty five, they fire me. And they do admit that they felt that for their viewers, I was too old. Did they miss the boat? They got so much mail because women my age were thrilled to see me working. Women older who they don't care about bragged that I was like their daughter, but mm. it was the younger ones who wanted to be me. Mm. And so I did one more show, and I got fired from that one, too. <laughs> and then I realized, and, I, and, and you're the psychiatrist and not me, but I'll tell you what I did, and then I'd really like you to translate it. Yeah. I looked in a mirror. Um, I was near, just about 45 I thought I looked great, okay? I was slender. Uh, I had auburn hair, green eyes. Um, 
and I wasn't wrinkled or anything. And I said, nobody wants me. Because I'd had 17 rejections. I had sent a lot of tapes out. And nobody wants me. And yet I know that I'm good at one thing. I am a good interviewer. I get big, famous people to say small, intimate things that unites us as human beings. Hmm. Can I really give up? This is what I said to the mirror. Not being on television again. Not being somebody. Not getting the perks. Can I do that? And it took a while. And I don't know if you think I'm nuts, but that's how I was able to go to the next phase of what I was, what I end up doing for a living. I'm going to ask you. I, I interview for a living. Okay. What did you think that was? Did that mean I was nuts? That I was so vain? I, I don't know. But I did talk to myself in a mirror. Well, what do you, did what mean that you were nuts? That I talked to myself in a mirror to try to get an answer? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean you're nuts if you talk to yourself in, the, in a mirror. <laughs> but um, but when you were doing, the next phase of your life was doing these um, interviews of celebrities and exactly. in conjunction with promoting their movies. But I, I wasn't quite clear from the book, weren't you were in those, Weren't you in those videos that you put together to do that as well, or was it just... Yes, Um, but it was two separate cameras, and they could be edited in or edited out. And the thing is that when I did the original interviews for the television show, I was in. But I realized that I could do these really good interviews, and nobody would know I was doing them, and then I could get as old or be as old as I... Huh. Wanted to be, and and that was the thing. I I did these interviews while I worked for CBS, and I thought to myself, only fifty people can do can get that close to a star on a one on one interview. Mm-hmm. But there were sixteen hundred television stations, and I sat down and I called two hundred television stations. The year is nineteen eighty three. They are not taking canned material from Hollywood. They are only taking movie clips but not interviews unless they did them. Yeah. And I called all these stations and eventually got 55 stations, especially in the top 50 markets, New York, L.A. I don't think I got L.A. I take that back. I got everybody but L.A. L.A.'s got a problem. They don't want somebody's camp material. They, they can get it themselves. Right. Um, and got stations willing to take an interview that they did not do. Mm-hmm. I had the idea. I knew it was going to work, but I only knew it was going to work. I had no way to prove it yet until um, I get, uh, I call somebody who I had known, and I had known him because he ran the TV cameras when I was doing working for CBS and doing these movie star interviews. He was in charge of all the technical stuff. And I told him my idea, and he said, okay, I, I said, I know you have to get a job. Uh, he was making trailers. You, from the same division, I could do this profile. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have anything. I just knew I had television stations and an idea. And he comes back and he gets a film called Cujo, and it was already finished, so there was no behind-the-scenes footage. And it's an interview with Dee Wallace at home because the movie was over, but she was the mother in E.T. and the woman in the bar at 10. And I went out there and I did an interview, and we cut it. You don't see me. You do hear me. And we sent it out to these 55 stations, and they played it. My idea worked. 
It's oh, like re- you were reinventing yourself. Yes, but, you and know, I was reinventing so... something that had never occurred to the studios right. to use an odd man out. Well, you know, it's it's so interesting that you bring it up in the context of um, of having been fired and ageism playing a role and and so on because. Even though then you were um, you became incredibly successful, and, and as I was said at the beginning, interviewing hundreds of celebrities, uh, the top celebrities, um, obviously there was a part of you that was missing this um, on air, or, or I mean, you did some on air in these in these interviews, but I mean, missing there, there was you were impacted by the the being fired and being told that you were too old or whatever. And um and and that leads into your sugar addiction. Absolutely. Well, I think the sugar addiction and I have to give credit to the executive at 20th Century Fox. Look, I'm a flirty lady, but never in my entire life has anybody ever equated a job with sex. Okay? Never. I was 47 years old, and he told me, I, uh, I, I, I think I have to be careful, but he did imply that if I wanted to work for him, I had to have sex with him. And I was, I, I could not deal with that. It would be, came back to, to what was happening when I did commercials in yeah. Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I walked away from that, but at this time, and you've hit the button, I was fired for my age. And I wanted desperately to work because I had tasted the honey. I knew what I was capable of doing, and I didn't want to give it up. But I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And that was the entree to a big studio. I have to say this. When Ginny was editing my book, she saw the hole there, and she asked me a really interesting question because I do put it in the book about him. I don't put his name in because he's a really big deal in politics and there's no way. um, But the truth of the matter is, she asked me a question and she said, what would have happened if he was good looking? (laughs) And I had to answer it in the only way I knew how. (laughs) I wanted a career very badly. Uh Uh So I did. And yes, that's where the sugar started. It just was I was adding a few pieces. I had sugar in my life. But sugar didn't own me, and I had a few pieces. And then when the pressure came that I sat down to interview Cher, which was the first, Jack Lemmon was the first big interview, and then Jimmy Stewart, but then came Cher. And, I, I, and, and all these interviews kept happening, and, and at the same time that I'm delivering these really intimate moments with these really famous people, I'm waiting for somebody to say, I'm not good enough to mm. be in this arena. Mm-hmm. And the only friend I really had was chocolate-covered peanuts. <laughs> Junky ones, not even, not even Mr. Goodbar. <laughs> I got them out of the bins in the supermarket where they used to have bins of candy. And on my way home, I would fill up the bag. And you have to understand that on my way home, was Malibu on the beach, and I was driving a high-end German convertible. Mm-hmm. Red. So therefore, <laughs> it didn't have anything to do with being successful. I mean, I'm successful. Why am I eating all this junk food? Mm-hmm. 
if it wasn't because I, underneath the facade, because the facade really looked good. It didn't matter that I was fat by then, and I was. The truth of the matter is that nobody cared that I was fat. I mean, I do owe that to a very famous fat interviewer. <laughs> so it was acceptable to be fat. Um, what was not acceptable was <laughs> I was tearing myself up. I was two people. I was the person on my best behavior when I worked for the studios, and I was a terror for everybody else. Well, it's it's so interesting because um, despite all of this going on underneath the surface, you know, you kept on becoming more and more successful. But there was that there was that part of you that had been squelched, you know by your mom early on that had found its way in doing the talk shows that was, was then being um, dampened at least again, even though, you know, because you weren't on interviewing these people in the same way that you did when it was your own talk show. And um, so that was sort of gnawing at you and making a, a hole where the candy, <laughs> the peanuts fit nicely in chocolate covered in. But what it gave me, was a way to interview stars that were going through, not whether they admitted it or not, but they also had fears within yeah. them from wherever it came from. A lot of them were, in fact, Meryl Street is the perfect one. I looked at her and I thought, here it is. The, she had already won two Oscars when I sat down with her. It wasn't like I had a, a, a you know, with the deer hunter or Kramer versus Kramer, she was already a big star and gets nominated from the film we sat down on, which was Ironweed. But the thing was, that what do you think she says to me? I never thought I would work again. I was scared to death that this was my last job. And I thought to myself, she's doing my life. Yes, yes. And really, isn't that just about everyone, or at least every woman? I mean, men too, but women have it worse in Hollywood. Um, because there's always someone behind you, you know, clamoring to to be you, and um, and and it is that feeling that one has to deal with, and and to try to not sabotage oneself um, to make it actually come true. Well, let me give you an example with Meryl Streep because I think this is interesting. Um, she did a film called The um, Bridges of Madison Cabot. I saw that. I loved it. Okay, she plays a woman 45. Again, uh, Clint Eastwood not only um, produced it, but he directed it and starred in it. And she was 45, and Warner Brothers did not want her. Mm. Clint Eastwood said, I am playing against a woman 45, and Meryl is 45. They wanted him to use a much younger woman. Mm, even but though in the book, from what I remember, was, that was about the age of the woman in the book, 45. Exactly. Exactly, okay. but you see, it's because of somebody as powerful as Clint Eastwood, yes. she got that role. Yes. But they were already doing it. If they're doing it to Meryl Streep about age, <laughs> what, are the, what yes. are those mortals? Now, the thing is that she jumped into her 60s and has become the hottest thing in show business again. Yes, yes, <laughs> isn't it amazing? Of $100 million films from Mamma Mia, Jules and Julia. I mean, you, and it's complicated. Give me a break. I thought that was... Incredible. So the idea is it happens. Now, interestingly enough, Angelina Jolie, I thought, would never, ever um, play a mother. She did in The Changeling, and because here she is now at 36, 
and they're starting to look at her <laughs> not as Laura Croft anymore. Mm-hmm. Her new film, which is going to be the take on Sleeping Beauty for Disney, will be out next year. She plays the wicked curse lady, but the young princess, oh, this is so cool, the young princess is going to be played by her four-year-old twin, uh, twin Vivian. <laughs> you know, wait a second. You know, I, I hadn't realized, I, I read that uh, her daughter was going to be in her movie, yes. but I didn't, how is a four-year-old going to be playing... A young princess from Sleeping Beauty. I mean, because I think she's just going to look beautiful. I think that's all she has to do. I don't think there's very many words. The idea is that she's going to play the princess. I guess when the curse comes on. Yes, yes, at the very beginning, okay. and then she'll and wake she up. She is who, beautiful. Who will she wake up being? Oh, another actress. They haven't cast it. All they were talking about <laughs> is that they got Angelina Jolie's um, daughter in the film. Well, you know what's interesting, and this kind of fits into what we're talking about, because I just did an interview for Star about um, comparing Surrey and, Sh- and Shiloh, and, um, and, and I was talking about Angelina Jolie and her children, and I was talking about how I think she has uh, a rivalry with her little girls, um, and because, you know, that she has to be the fairest of them all. Now, I know that that's Snow White. We're talking about Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> but <laughs> hang with me here. Um, you know, there's the Oedipal phase, like two or three to seven or eight, when um, little girls um, naturally in the normal psychosexual development um, want to marry their fathers or, in other words, want their father's total love and attention and want to get rid of their mothers like the... Uh, story of Oedipus or the technically the electric complex for girls and um, and what happens is that mothers um, you know tend to get a little annoyed by this because they also want their husband's um, love and attention and so with with Angelina Jolie who is particularly jealous of any woman catching Brad's eye whether it's his daughter or or, who, or, or Jennifer Aniston or whomever um, I think that she really has, because this had to do with how, how Shiloh and, um, is dressed in very tomboyish-like and so on. And I, but I think for all of her girls that there is a kind of jealousy, rivalry. And so it's really interesting that she would play the evil, the evil, what was it, evil, not witch, but the evil fairy. And, yeah. and her daughter plays, <laughs> plays uh, the, the princess who gets put to sleep. Yes, but this is the other daughter. This is the no, younger I know, one I know, but who still... looks exactly like um, Angelina, who looked exactly like her mother. I mean, uh-huh. Shiloh does not look. No, no, no. Shiloh has a lot of Brad Pitt in her. I was talking about um, Angelina and all of her daughters, not just Shiloh. I think that she ha- she wants to be the fairest of them all, the prettiest, the, the diva in the family, period, for all of them. So, well, um, you, so it's interesting. Well, let me tell you what I discovered about Angelina. I, I was, um, I was, you know, I have to say that she is extremely beautiful. If you sit two feet away from her, you have to realize that she is breathtaking, uh, just like Charlize. But I asked the same question to both Charlize and to Angelina about beauty, about walking in to be to audition or meet with a director who's going to, who has the power to hire you or not. Mm-hmm. And Charlize says, I do the best I can, I know what I look like, and I try to convince them. Okay, 
Angelina couldn't do that. She said, I hate the way I look. I thought to, I sat there and I thought to myself, how can somebody who looks like that not like the way they look? So she also said this, which I thought was very funny, and since I like to wear a lot of black, she says she wears a lot of black because she's a slob. <laughs> she's always dropping food and stuff on her. And this is in the interviews. Yes, I mean, I... that's what I'm saying. They reveal little things that made them more human than big things. Yes, absolutely. Um should I tell you about what Johnny Depp did? Because he really, I have to say that sometimes um, I had attitude, and I don't mean that they saw me walk in with that kind of attitude, but I had an interior attitude, and I had made up my mind that I didn't like him because I, I, because I think there's an appeal about bad boys, and I was above being a, being, <laughs> a, a, a being taken in by a bad boy. Well, because I guess you already had your first husband being a bad boy. <laughs> That's right. So one was enough in my life. But the thing is, I walked in there, and um, it, was, it, it was for the first Pirates. And um, the scuttlebutt all over town was that this was going to be a major failure on Disney's part. Mm. And so I went in with the attitude that, I'm going to just have a good time because nobody's going to want to see this interview because the film is probably going to die, all right? And so I asked him some standard questions. Did, when did you know you wanted to act? And he says, I can't even tell you I'm an actor. I thought it was a one-off. And I thought, hey, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I said, you know, you're constantly being fire, uh, fo- followed around. What does it do to you? And he says, let me tell you something. I am fascinated that the world would care what a man who tells lies for a living would say. Uh-huh. And I looked at this man and I thought, I'm in love. I'm in love. He was, I didn't realize how much I was in love with him until we got to the story he told about his first movie. Now, I didn't know at the time because I, I do a lot of research, but I don't do that kind of research what his first movie was. It happened to be Nightmare on Elm Street and he was literally starving. And he got this chance, and it was the most money he'd ever seen in his life, so he calls his mother. Now, Johnny Depp is an actor, first and foremost. Every role he plays, he puts a different voice in. He usually tries to give it a different look so that it's, it's his take on that character. So he's telling me the story how he called home, and it's a very nice conversation. And all of a sudden, he says, on the other line, what kind of movie? And he changes. He changes everything, his voice, his demeanor, the the way his body moved. And it, it always bothered me because the rest of the sentence was, well, no, Mom, it's it's a horror movie, but, it, you know, it's going to be great and this and that. I knew he wasn't talking to his mother. I just hmm. knew it because he might be a lot of things, but he wasn't going to talk to his mother like that, especially hmm. in an interview with 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 somebody like me or anybody. And I didn't know for three years or who he was talking about. And when he went to do uh, um, Public Enemy, where he plays Dillinger, uh, Michael Mann, the director, is a stickler for realism, so he went to Joliet, to the prison where Dillinger was, and there was a historian from the prison who came up to Johnny and said, would you like to see pictures of your stepfather while he was incarcerated here? Mm. That's who was on the other line. 
Huh. <laughs> See, maybe I could get a job as a therapist. <laughs> well, well, so I'm not sure what you mean. You mean that he was he was calling somebody. He, he called his mother, who was married to Robert Palmer, yes. who used to be in prison. Oh, oh, See, oh. Somebody likes bad boys. I think that's the reason Johnny left home at 17. Uh-huh, okay, she got married. Uh-huh. And I do think sometimes your children become baggage. You know, that's just what happens. He left home very, very early. And um, he was married very early. He was married at 19. And, of course, he was divorced very early. But um, he that's is a cool guy. That's interesting that that's where he gets that sort of hard edge um, to him that he's at least able to use in movies. Yes, but let me tell you what I really love about the man. When he was making um, Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. and I went on to interview him again, and he, he, he's a charmer. Uh, um, his daughter gets E. coli. Now, they're shooting in England, and the family was over there with him. And he walked out, not in temperament, because he and Tim Burton, the director, are inseparable. They could have been born brothers, but they weren't. And they think the same way, they act the same way, they draw pictures the same way. And um, he left the set, a multi-million dollar film, and sat by her bedside for 10 days wow. until she was out of danger. That, to me, is the medal of the man. Yes, and yes. just last year, he gave a million pounds to that hospital that made his daughter well. Wow. So I like a guy like that. Yes, that's amazing. Well, how did you, um, I mean, what, what, what's striking is that with all of these stars, you found a way not only to bring out their humanity, but to really, to really get to like them and to have that, be, have that facilitate the interview. What, weren't there, I mean, a lot of, so many stars, how did you get to, um, you know, so many stars think so much of themselves that they don't really, that they don't really, um, that, 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 that they're kind of obnoxious. Um, you know, well, we, usually in these interviews they have a facade that mm-hmm. they know exactly what the questions are going to be and they've really formulated what the answers are going to be and then somebody like me comes along and I can't ask those questions because yes. they bore me. Yes. And I think they're so taken back. I mean, this is what I got from the technical crews, from the crew that would work the room that the star was in. Yeah. And they would say, they were just answering in rote. And then you walk in and you throw them a curveball. Yes. I mean, the thing is with, with Bruce Willis, I said to him, I know that you ran for class president and you were really, and you made a promise. You promised music between classes. What kind of game were you playing? <laughs> and he starts to laugh. And I said, and on top of that, did you even win? He says, of course I became the class president. <laughs> and I said, and what about the music? He said, I got some. <laughs> but the thing is, it broke the ice that he, then he wanted to talk. Yes, actually, you do talk about that. And I think that's so important that you did you know, more than a lot of people who came in there and asked those rote questions that they were handed by the studios and all of that, um, you, can't, you did all this research to dig into their background to find these icebreakers, these things that would make them uh, uh, take down the facade. Well, I think it's because that was my only job. I wasn't doing a television show five days a week. And the perfect example is Harrison Ford. Okay, because now I've admitted how old I am, but I sat down with Harrison Ford for Star Wars. 
the first Star Wars, okay? Uh-huh. And I operated off of the standard sheet that the studio gave me. Let's face it, I'm doing a show five days a week in San Diego, and then I'm coming up to do six interviews or eight interviews on a weekend in L.A. I don't have time. Yeah. I, just, I just ask what this stuff is in front of me. I found that interview. I have to tell you, I was so embarrassed because I looked at him and I said, did anybody tell you how pretty your eyes were? Did I die? <laughs> but when I sit down with him for Air Force One, uh-huh. I said to him, you play the best heroes on film. Oh. Are you getting back at the bullies that used to beat you up in school? Oh, wow. And he says to me, I only told one person. And I said, not to him, but the aside is, and that person put it on the Internet. (gasps) (laughs) And he gave me the story that, yes, he used to, he went to a new school, and he was the sport at recess, and they used to push him down an embankment every single day. And he would pick himself up, and he said, and I brushed myself off, and I walked up again, and he says, but don't feel sorry for me, because the girls kind of took me under their wing. I thought that was so interesting. Oh, well. But well, you know that music is signaling that it's the end of the show, <gasps> unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. Because we could obviously talk for hours. I want to tell people, remind everyone again about the book. It's called Nearly Famous, Secrets, Lies, and Videotape. And you have just gotten some of the highlights um, random highlights as we got into conversation, but this book is filled with all kinds of pearls. You want to find out uh, things that, that stars haven't told anybody else, and you want to find out more about how Reba got over her struggles and continued to be even ever more successful. So thank you, Reba, for being on the show. Thank you all for listening. You've thank been listening you. To, you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.